I'm Mark Huddle, Associate Professor of History and the Director for the Center for Georgia Studies here at Georgia College. On September 3rd, 1991, at the Imperial Foods Chicken Processing Plant in the small town of Hamlet, North Carolina, a hose came loose, splattering flammable Chevron 32 hydraulic fluid across the shop floor, igniting the industrial fryers, which exploded. As the fire raced across the facility and smoke filled the building, panicked workers struggled to make their way to the exits. There was no working sprinkler system. Many of the exits out of the structure were locked or blocked. The 56 people who survived the Imperial that day could hear the screams of their friends and coworkers trapped inside. 25 people died in the fire, 18 of whom were women, many single mothers with children. Our guest, Dr. Brian Simon, professor of history at Temple University, is the author of a number of books, including Boardwalk of Dreams, Atlantic City and the Fate of Urban America, and Everything But the Coffee, Learning About America from Starbucks. In his new book, The Hamlet Fire, The Tragic Story of Cheap Food, Cheap Government, and Cheap Lives, published this past September by the New Press, Dr. Simon tells the story of this industrial tragedy at the Imperial plant. His storytelling has the immediacy of the very best investigative journalism, and at the same time, he takes a step back to contextualize the Hamlet fire against the backdrop of the political, economic, and social transformations of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. In the ideological shifts, what he calls the politics of cheap that created the social conditions and contributed to the disaster. Dr. Simon walks the reader through the economics of what he calls poultry capitalism, the industrial production of chicken, as well as the politics of labor relations and deregulation. The book is disturbing, heartbreaking, and deeply humane. It is an angry, relentlessly researched and argued indictment of our contemporary political economy. Brian Simon, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me and thanks for that introduction. Well, let's start with the genesis of this project, your road to Hamlet. What drew you to that place and to this story in particular? Actually, it was the road itself that drew me to Hamlet. In the 90s, I was living in Raleigh and working on a dissertation about South Carolina textile workers. And I drove most Monday mornings down Route 1 from Raleigh to Columbia, and I went through Hamlet almost every week. And somewhere along the way, I learned that Hamlet was the hometown of John Coltrane and Tom Wicker, the great former New York Times journalist. And in about 1990, I drove through town just trying to check it out. So because I was fascinated what, about this small town that would produce these two, to me, kind of legendary and influential figures. So I had this prehistory with Hamlet, and then the fire broke out in September of 1991 while I was living in Raleigh, thinking about Southern labor history, and I devoured the press coverage of the event. The Raleigh News and Observer was a really tremendous paper at the time, and its coverage of the fire was deep, extensive, and humane. And I, and I think it stuck with me because years later, after I finished writing a book about Starbucks, I was kind of contemplating historians doing next project. And I, I recalled the Hamlet fire, and I pretty quickly recalled a lot of details about it. And one of those details that really stuck in my head was what the plant was making. And they 
produce chicken tenders largely for Shoney's, Long John Silver, and Red Lobster. And I kind of started thinking about the project by thinking about the food they made and, and how the food they made was linked to the eventual tragedy that happened there. So it was the road and really the chicken tenders that brought me back to Hamlet and recalling this, this coverage from the News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer. You know, I, I remember the fire. I remember the news coverage. I was living in New Orleans, I think, when the event actually took place. And, of course, the thing that leapt out in the way that the media was covering it where I was was that, you know, the doors had been changed shut. And so the, you know, the implication even in the earliest stages of, of the investigation was that there were these corrupt bosses that essentially created a set of conditions that cost these people their lives. But, you know, one of the things that really kind of drew me into your book was that you, you begin with, you know, interviews with, you know, some of the survivors, you know, many of whom are still struggling with the trauma of those events. And, and I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in most of those instances, your subjects are bearing witness for the first time about what happened. What, what did you learn from that particular experience talking to those people? Because that was the first time that actual human beings that were involved in this event, you know, really kind of leapt out at me. Some of the people I talked to was not the first time they spoke. In fact, the woman I opened the book with, Loretta Goodwin, spoke pretty often right after the fire. In fact, testified before Congress about what happened there. And they were the first people who were willing to talk to me. People who talked in the past were willing to repeat their stories. I mean, that, that makes a certain sense. And one of the challenges for me was trying to find people who hadn't told their stories before. I had some success and some failures on that front, but telling it in the kind of intimate way that I asked them to tell it, it was not a 15-minute interview. We often talk for hours on end, more than once. I tried to get to know them a little bit and let them know me. I mean, they knew, you know, we talked, and I think hopefully in some cases build a kind of trust and and they actually helped me fact check part of the book. But one of the conversations that was really important to me was was before I even talked to the survivors, I actually um, reached out to some local journalists and boosters in town, and I went out to lunch with them the first time I arrived in Hamlin in probably tw 2011. And we were talking about the fire, and it, it was not a particularly easy conversation. And about halfway through the lunch, they just sort of stopped me and said, look, there is nothing really significant about this fire except that the owners locked the doors and they were some bad actors and they were Yankees anyway. <laughs> the, the owners had come from New York through Pennsylvania. And to them, that was enough for the conversation. There was not a book to be written. There was not a larger story. And, and that kind of stuck with me, right, because they insisted on the story as an accident, mm -hmm. a story that, you know, ended with the kind of actions of two individuals, Emmett and Brad Rowe, the father and son who owned and operated the plant, and nothing more. And, you know, my instincts as a historian, my instincts as a political kind of being was there aren't accidents. Right. People are products of history. Their actions are products of history. And, and really, that sort of set in motion the project itself. 
I wasn't going to just narrate the story of the fire. I mean, I really tell that in the beginning of the book. It was to pull back and kind of render a social autopsy. Mm-hmm. What were the kind of deep causes, the deep transformations in American life that let those people who worked in the plant made them vulnerable, right? And, and, and that vulnerability, again, wasn't an accident. That vulnerability, I would argue, was – and it wasn't even socially produced. It was really politically produced. Right. Well, that you know, it's funny because I I actually wrote down the quote of one of the journalists in in preparation for this, and you know the he says they were just a couple of rogue employers, and then very specifically says there was no social meaning, and and that conversation itself was a political conversation, right? Sure. Um, what was interesting was they knew exactly what I wanted to do. Uh huh. From the get-go. And they had obviously thought about it in that context as well. Yeah, and one of them, so it's interesting, one of them came to a book signing I did, the the book signing that was closest to Hamlet in Southern Pines, North Carolina. A journalist was there from Hamlet, and she said to me, will you come to Hamlet to give a talk about the book? And I said, I'd be happy to, but I haven't been invited yet. And one of the people I was talking to was a, a firefighter, a journalist, and also works for the local historical society. And I said, well, how about if I gave it to the historical society? And he said, no, I don't think that will work. <laughs> and it was without any elaboration, and that was the end of that. You know, I understood why that wasn't going to work. Sure. I guess I was going to wait to ask you what the reception of the book has been, if you had talked to those journalists in any great detail whether or not maybe you change their minds, <laughs> with the, uh, that there may be a significant social meaning. So the response in Hamlet, as far as I can tell, has been muted. I haven't heard from many people. Annette Zimmerman, who I interviewed several times in the book, wrote me and asked me where she could get a book, and I sent her a copy of it, and I haven't heard back from her. You know, again, I don't totally know what that means. Kind of officialdom in Hamlet, people who I interviewed, which would largely be white, the ex-mayor of the town, Abby Covington, has, again, wrote me and asked me where to get the book. I presume that she's read it, but I haven't heard back from her. On the other hand, I got a note that, you know, you you write a book because it helps people and, and it matters to people and it helps them think about things. And it's a book a little bit without heroes, as you know. And right. but, but one person who is kind of a hero to me is this guy, Stephen Fry, who was the psychologist who helped many of the workers deal with their PTSD. Yes. And he, he returned to Hamlet many times, I mean, 70 or 80 times in that first year he talked about driving between Charlotte and Hamlet. He wrote me and found that, that the book really helped him see what he lived through and made sense of the story and felt like it would help the survivors also understand that they were they were in some ways set up. And the interesting thing about the fire is some of the survivors blame themselves. Yes. They blame themselves for not speaking up. They blame themselves for not pushing back against management. And they blame themselves in a, in a very complicated thing for allowing them to be accused of stealing chickens as a justification for locking the doors. And we can talk more about this, but they understood that the portrait of them sometimes in the media was of kind of poor, ineffectual people who almost deserved this. Right. 
And some of them internalized that, and he felt like the book would allow them to push past that kind of internalization. And, you know, this is 26 years after the fire. They're still dealing with the way they were portrayed in its aftermath. I think that's sort of why I asked that question, because, you know, trauma has – there's a a powerful process, I think, that people go through. And so, obviously, memory is a powerful thing, remembering – is a powerful thing, but so is forgetting. And so as I worked my way through, which is a traumatic story for the reader who is engaging this for the first time, uh, I was really curious as to what maybe some of the survivors felt after, especially as, you know, when even the journalists can say, well, there's no social meaning. Well, you, you provide this thick context for what these people experienced. And I wouldn't have been surprised to hear that there was a sense of betrayal that they would have felt as a result of what you describe and and the work that you've done. The sense of betrayal really does mark the kind of aftermath of the fire for the survivors, particularly for African Americans who were the majority of the workers in the plant. Um, Probably 75% of the line workers were African American women even though the number of people who died are about half white, half black, they definitely feel a sense of betrayal. They they felt betrayed by the Rose. They felt betrayed by the local government. And that was a profound sense of betrayal. Um, And then they, they really felt betrayed by the justice system, which they thought would somehow make everything right, that the Rose would be penalized in a way that made things right, and there would be restitution that made things right. On both counts, the way things worked out, the amount of money they got in various civil and legal cases, in some ways exacerbated the kind of PTSD and trauma they were feeling. They felt like other people, I mean, literally the way that settlements are figured out is basically they quantify your worth. And if you're making $5 an hour and you're 40 years old, you don't have much worth because they just anticipate your lifelong earnings. And so what's a life worth in this case? Sometimes it was $20,000, $25,000. That kind of brutal quantification wasn't, you know, they didn't miss what that meant. And they didn't miss that Emmett Rowe, who owned the factory, pled out, was sentenced to 19 years in jail and served less than five. Most people would have survived that blast if the doors were open. Right. So the fact that you know he was involved in ordering the locking of the doors, and we can talk more about this, and, and served five years sentence for the death of 25 people, it didn't seem like justice to many people on the ground. Well, let's let's talk about Emmett Rowe, because you know, he, in many ways, he is a representative figure of the sort of broader processes that you're describing here that were you know transforming economic life in this period. Tell us something about Emmett Rowe. Writing about the owners was a real challenge because Emmett Rowe on one level can fit an easy version of a bad guy. He was a kind of squat guy with a crew cut, didn't laugh very easily, swore prolifically, was not someone interested in making friends. He was gruff. And in the wake of the fire, when Several journalists went to ask him a question. His response was to give them the finger. And so he had this kind of, you know, easy to tag as kind of a bad guy. But I tried to, to 
put him in the flow of history as much as I tried to put everybody else in the flow of history. And that flow of history was, here's a guy who grew up in Troy, New York, serves in the Army, gets a job in a food processing company, kind of sticks with that job, stumbles into chicken, goes, is sent to Moosick, Pennsylvania to run a plant that he eventually buys. And this is a small producer in an industry that's becoming increasingly competitive and increasingly dominated by big players, which meant that his bottom line was always moving and seemed to be always moving downward. And he was in a real struggle to keep his family's business afloat. In response to those struggles, he moves to his plant to Hamlet, North Carolina, in part to, to benefit from the kind of historic opposition to unions in North Carolina to benefit from North Carolina's deregulatory environment, a choice that they felt like they had made in order to keep compete with places like Ohio and Pennsylvania. And Roe went there deliberately also to avoid the kind of what he saw as a prying eye of unions and, and the local government. And it didn't really work. You know, as much as he was making a rational move to make his company more competitive, he just found the competition got more intense after he got there, that there were lots of companies who wanted to make chicken tenders and chicken nuggets, and they saw them as high-profit items, and they squeezed these small manufacturers like Roe. And so he was constantly being forced to kind of speed up the production line. He was constantly being forced to kind of get more out of his workers. He saw it as a business strategy to avoid repairing equipment because he had big debts hanging over his head. And so at the time of the fire, Rose's business position was incredibly precarious. And the only option he felt like he could take was to just push his workers and the equipment. And he eventually got to the breaking point. And even the, the origins of the fire itself are about that kind of business pressure that he's facing. The hydraulic line that you mentioned in the opening was fixed with the wrong parts. Right. Well, he did that because the, the right parts were too expensive, he thought, or that's what people recalled. And if he had followed the manual, he would have turned the burner off under the big fryer that actually cooked the chicken. Sure. But he didn't want to do that because that would, you know, it would take 45 minutes to get things back up and running. And it's not like he even had to tell his maintenance people that. They knew these things. They knew that if they went and said to the boss, well, you know, this isn't right, they would be thrown out the door. They wouldn't have a job. And that's the other thing about, you know, this kind of system that really was operating in Hamlet. What Roe wanted was quiet workers, workers who wouldn't complain. It wasn't, I, I don't want you to, or listeners to confuse that with compliant or, you know, misguided. They knew they were working in crappy conditions, but there weren't any other choices in this town. And that was part of the appeal of Hamlet to him. He was going to be a place where he had essentially a monopoly of control over workers who, because of deindustrialization in that community, because of the transformation of the local, local economy, had few other choices for employment, so they couldn't complain. That was exactly what he wanted. And now when we start telling these stories together, you see the recipe for the disaster that's coming about. It, this isn't an accident. It's forces moving towards that fateful day. Right. Well, the theme of silence you know, works its way through the entire story, the entire book, that silence cuts multiple ways. I mean, there there are federal and state bureaucracies that are supposed to be 
keeping an eye on this. And I guess what, what got me is that even when they are investigating what's happening at the plant, there's no follow-through on, on getting the rows to actually make the changes and make the sort of fixes that they would have needed to be in compliance. There's a real disconnect between what the law actually says and what then people are actually doing on the ground. Look, there's a lot of attention to deregulation as part of our current kind of social system and political arrangement, and that's an important part of this story. But also an important part of the story that we don't talk enough is that laws that are on the books go unenforced. And these are forms of, of silence, right? And part of what I'm arguing is, right, there's a system in place in Hamlet. That's why this isn't an accident. And that system fits together a lot of things. But that system also requires on the back end copious amounts of silence and externalities. It basically is a lie. So that cheap, relatively inexpensive chicken tenders and fingers are based on a whole series of silences and lies that keep the system going and ultimately keep the system going by not calling attention to themselves. So in other words, we don't know what's in our food. Right. That's part of the system. Deregulation is a form of silence, right? Of, I mean, that's exactly what regulation is. It's, it's shining a spotlight on conditions to make sure that people take care of the safety and health of other people, right? That the system works in a fair way. Well, deregulation is a form of silence. Not enforcing the laws on the books is a form of silence. And then not accounting for the cost of all of this is a form of silence. The jobs in these plants, both the plants that inviscerate and dissemble chickens and in the plants that process chickens, and they're two different things, right? In the chicken system, there's, you know, the kind of, taking a whole chicken and taking the feathers off and cutting it up is a disassembly plant. And a plant like the Imperial plant was one that took already cut up chicken and turned it into something else. Both of those just wear workers' bodies down. Well, what happens when a worker can't move her hand anymore or can't bend her back anymore? She goes on public assistance. This isn't an individual choice. This is part of a system that allows a company like Imperial to run through labor. And that's another form of silence. Right. Well, that kind of moves us to this idea of the politics of cheap, as you, as you call it in the book. And I love the concept because the phrase encapsulates an amazingly complicated you know, set of variables that are constantly in play. You know, we've mentioned some of them just then, but the fact is that the society demands low-cost consumables, and there is a wealth and host of players that are working one way or the other, either by their actions or their inaction, to make that happen. Right. And it's, it, it's completely rooted in you know, the political economy. I mean, it, that's, in fact, the definition of it. Can, let's talk about the politics of cheap. Yeah, let, let's talk about them because, you know, in a sense, I, I imagine that our flag should read a slogan from Walmart that says, save money, live better. <laughs> and in a sense, I think in the 1970s, that became the essential social bargain in American life, particularly 
not totalizing, but more and more parts of the country were sort of, this is what they were given as the social bargain. And this is very different than the way that American policymakers and many Americans thought about political economy, really from the New Deal into the 1970s, where the kind of idea was, look, well, we got this consumer economy, and the way we're going to make this work, and, and maybe the best way to make it work is, let's see if we can get the highest wages possible for for men, largely men, largely white men. And if they make money, they're going to spend money. And when they spend money, other people are going to be employed on the things they spend money on. And this will grease the wheels of the whole whole thing. And so really, Henry Ford had sort of thought about this idea first when he said, I'm going to pay my workers $5 a day. And when someone asked him why, he said, well, that way they can afford the, the cars that they're making. Right. Really, by the 1980s, that kind of idea of you know increasing aggregate demand and wages in order to kind of spur economic growth and sustain it had been flipped on its head. And instead of the Ford worker being paid you know, what was at the time double the kind of average national wage, you have the imperial worker. A worker paid just above minimum wage, and after she finishes her shift, she gets in her car that's barely held together and drives over to the Piggly Wiggly in Hamlet and buys chicken tenders to feed her family because they're the cheapest thing in the store. Right. And the nature of the system suggests, right, that what we need to do is lower the cost of items. And the benefit for everyone is that they will then be able to buy cheaper items. We don't need higher wages anymore. We don't need regulations anymore. What we need is cheap goods. The essence of that system becomes the social bargain for many people in the country, particularly for the working poor and people on the bottom. You know, it, you might not make so much, but at least what you're going to buy is going to cost less. So, you know, take it and accept it. But again, that system relies on all kinds of hidden costs and relies on one of the great frauds of kind of recent America, and that is that the price reveals everything. The price reveals nothing, essentially. It hides the system that needs to be in place to build it. In this case, the case study is chicken, and I guess I would warn readers and listeners that when you get to the sections on the industrialization of the chicken industry, it is deeply disturbing, especially... It's not just the industrialization of the chicken industry. It's the industrialization of the chicken itself. That's Well, it's, that's right. right. And right. I'm trying to blot that part out of my uh, out of my psyche. Sorry, there, Mark. Now, it, this has made me think about, of course, is that how complicit we all are. There's not a, a kind of grand conspiracy. Those of us who shop and who have a, a limited income, I go to Walmart periodically. I mean, you know, I have small children who live off of chicken nuggets and, and things that look like chicken nuggets, and it becomes a much easier thing to not think about the social costs that you are describing. And I think that there is a lot of complicity, and it, it factors into this theme of silence that you were describing. I mean, for 100 years, the meat industry is from the jungle forward through fast food nation. <laughs> yeah has thrived on ability to, one, disconnect us from the land and disconnect us from what we eat and turn that mystery into something we don't talk about. But that, too, is a product of politics, right, that the mystery is only allowed to sort of be perpetuated by the fact that big 
meat and big industry deliberately hides the process. In a, in a place like Georgia and North Carolina, there's often gag acts that bar people from filming inside processing plants. The labeling we have in this country focuses on nutrition, but not the process. It says nothing about the labor that goes into it. You know, this is deliberately created, and I, and, and I kind of think it's been created for so long that we don't even, even now when we know much more about how our food is made, we're able to sort of take in the information and quickly dismiss it. Like it's, we don't even know what to do with the information anymore. We become so sort of, you know, alienated to use a term that isn't talked about enough anymore right. from the process that makes our food. But, you know, what I tried to do in the book was to take you from the starting point from a cable processing plant in Georgia to how that chicken that started there ended up through Imperial and onto the plate of a Shoney's along a highway that weekend, that day before that people died in the plant. And that's very much part of the process, right? A process that is dependent. We can use whatever kind of words we want to use, but it depends on the essentially a kind of brutalization of animals a kind of brutalization of workers, and really a kind of dumping a lot of the waste into the environment in which the producers only pay a fraction of the cost of all of this. One of the powerful things that the book does is that as you are spinning that tale, you are also weaving the very human story of Hamlet back in so that we can remember that there are human beings involved here. You know, it's it's not just impersonal economic forces or political decisions that are being made at the federal, state, and local level. There are actual human beings at the bottom of the chain that are not just deeply effective, but where it becomes an actual life or death situation. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it was part of the balancing act of writing the book. But I also, at the heart of this, too, is this kind of embedded in the world of cheap is this kind of notion of choice, that people have choices, and if they make the right choices, they'll be better off, right? So if people ate the right foods, they wouldn't cost us so much money. But we have this obesity problem because people make the wrong decisions. But in fact, people are making the right decisions. The, The cheapest food has the most calories in it, and if you're underpaid, you're buying that food. You know, if you work in a town where there's only one employer and you have two kids at home and no option if you lose that job, then it's rational to stay silent on that job, right? Sure. You have no evidence that the, that the local, state, or federal government cares about you anyways. I mean, in fact, they've made it clear that you don't matter. And so what I wanted to do was also kind of put them in a world, the same world of cheap, in which rational decisions and, and even good decisions are not necessarily decisions that will create any kind of freedom, autonomy, or agency, which cuts against the very grain of the kind of ethos of, you know, the market will free us, that get the government out of the way, and, you know, we'll have real freedom. That's an illusion, and I, and I think this story makes that rhetoric yet again shows how hollow it is, and, but it also shows that it, the power of it to kind of hollow out, really, the, the American dream and American small towns. Well, in, in a perverse way, it also puts 
Emmett Rowe on common common ground with the Loretta Goodwins and the Georgia Quicks and the Annette, Annette Zimmermans because he's trapped in the same system. He's making certain choices that are based on one very simple idea, and that is to to keep the doors open and keep the lights on. And right. you know, so there is in this really awful way a set of rational choices that he's making that ultimately ends up in tragedy. In 1970, Nixon passed the OSHA law, right, that was supposed to guarantee workplace safety in America. And it, look, it, was a, it, it had this guarantee implicit in it, but it was a hollow law from the very beginning. By the time Emmett Rowe arrives in North Carolina, and I tell this story in the book, North Carolina was the most industrial state in America per capita. It had 180,000 workplaces with 11 or more employees. The state had about 40 industrial inspectors, people who would inspect factories to make sure that they were safe. If those people went to one factory a day, every day, for five days a week, it would have taken them almost 70 years to inspect every factory in the state. Right. So what did that mean to Emmett Rowe? If he actually wanted to abide by kind of safety conditions as they were on the books, he would have put himself at a competitive disadvantage because his competitors aren't doing it. They know they're never getting inspected. Right. But he so, took it to an extreme. I mean, you know, there was no sign. There were people in the town that didn't even know the factory was there for how many months after it opened. You know, I don't know how extreme he took it. Look, I'm not trying to make Emmett Rowe no, into no. a good guy. I get it. In the brutally competitive world he worked in, my real sense is he's pretty typical. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, the, the kind of story turns on a key moment, right? Emmett Rowe's decision to lock the doors. Right. And... Emmett Rowe locked the doors because the USDA told him to lock the doors, essentially. Right. He was having a problem with flies in the plant. And the threat from the USDA, who was protecting consumers, right, they would come into the plant. That was the one thing that was regulated was the meat was slightly regulated. USDA officials would be in the plant four or five days a week. They're giving him all this grief about flies coming in a back door, which was near a trash compactor. And eventually, one of Rose's maintenance or supervisors suggests locking the doors. And they said, fine, that seems like a fair solution, because what Rose couldn't afford was to be shut down by the federal government. Mm -hmm. What the federal government had done was protect and consumers by putting employees at risk. And um, the interesting part of the story, if you ask people at the time and, and people who remember the fire, they would tell you that the doors were locked because the workers were stealing chickens. That's right. And that plays another role and a kind of really sinister role in the fire, one that I think here Emmett Rowe allowed reporters to repeat. He never corrected anybody, not that he spoke much, but that actually was used as a justification for locking the doors by people, both before the fire and after the fire. They said, well, look at the kind of people who work there. They would steal right. chickens. Of course you have to lock the doors. So when the fire happened, some people, you know, kind of whispered, and sometimes the whispers were caught by people in the press that, you know, they really kind of got what they deserved for being thieving people. And that, that was never, the, that was not the story. The story was the USDA signed off on it. But here's another way in which the people who worked in that plant were made into, you know, less valuable than other people. We're not going to protect them. We're not going to enforce the law there. And, you know, they deserved it anyways. And there is a real kind of cheap depends on valuing some people's lives, some products, and really 
the humanity of some over others. For the system that you've described to work, then, and this this may be an overstatement and a little bit harsh, but I, I get the sense that to those people, the people that you just described, this is just the cost of doing business. You know, that, that the lives that were lost there, yes, it was a tragedy, or as many of them simply referred to it as an accident. But as you say, if they are going to denigrate the victim, if they're going to criminalize the victim, right, the implication is that these lives lost are simply the cost of having cheap chicken nuggets, you know, being able to go to Shoney's or Red Lobster. But nobody could say it that way at the time, right, sure. or now, right? Because that would go one step further than they could go. But in a sense, that's what the system said, right? In part, what happens is how the memory of this kind of quickly fades allows the system to keep going on. We're not going to make a full accounting of what happened here. We're not going to substantially change the nature of regulation we're going to do a little bit, we're going to put a Band-Aid on it, and then we can just get back to what we really need to do here, which is to churn out, you know, cheap products so people can save money and live better. You mentioned in the book the Bangladesh tragedy of a few years ago. It, it becomes something that happens somewhere else, you know. I, it, in the collective memory until now with this book, it was almost non-existent. You know, I've been years since I it even thought about that particular event. Yeah, I had a kind of really fascinating experience. I was in Greensboro talking about the book, and um, a middle school teacher came. And about halfway through while I was talking, she just interrupted me um, and said, oh, my goodness, I've been teaching about the Triangle Fire in my class for 10 years, and I didn't even know that this happened here. And... I think there's a way of forgetting that's really important to keep in the system of cheap going. And in fact, that's all maybe ultimately cheap's most powerful component is its ability to make the alternatives to it seem distant and unobtainable. And that's part of the intervention I hope the book will do is, is one, to link it to our present, to Bangladesh, to um, there was a building collapse here in Philadelphia where I live that had all the hallmarks of cheap to it, to the fire in London recently where they use products that sort of made this um, inevitable. You know, if, if we are going to kind of live in a world of silence, we're going to live in a world where some people are made more vulnerable. Right. And we need to, to sort of really make some sense of if we want to live in a world where this is a kind of repeated aspect of it. And in many ways, the process that brought Emmett Rowe to Hamlet is similar to the process that brought one step removed Benetton to Bangladesh, is that capital moves to where not only it can find cheap labor, but labor that's vulnerable and where it will essentially have a monopoly over it. To me, that is the essence of the, of the definition of globalization. And, and in many ways, well, everything in Hamlet is made, consumed, and distributed within maybe a four-state area. It's the same process that we call globalization. Right. 
I have a kind of broad question, and I think we have kind of touched on it in various ways. I want to consider the Hamlet fire in the context of your body of work. Um, When I look at the range of the work that you've done, there is this really compelling eclecticism to the subjects that you've taken on. Uh, Atlantic City, Starbucks, um, now the Imperial Fire, and and yet I, I see a common thread that ties the works together. And, and, you know, my sense of it is that, you know, the Hamlet Fire is kind of the third book in a trilogy. That, that It deals with how Americans consume, you know, whether it be leisure or coffee you know, or chicken tenders. And so, I, you know, I wonder, what is it that draws you to the politics of consumption? And you know, what do you think it tells us about American history and society? You know, I have a relatively simple definition of consumption, um, and and that is it in and of itself is a revealing act, like a highly condensed social fact. And part of what I've tried to write about is look at places and acts of buying and unpack them, because I think that, that they're incredibly revealing, that there are very few things that we do that don't reflect on how we want to imagine ourselves, but aren't a product of a whole set of complicated decisions. And, and you know, from my work, um, I'm always trying to find the politics in it, you know, both the kind of big P politics, how to, um, the kinds of people who get elected on the first Tuesdays of November shape these things, but also small P politics. I mean, how we imagine what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be a member of a community, how do they get played out in these moments. And I think the thing that ties it together, what and this would actually tie my first book together with this as well, is that I've always been interested in political economy, the way in which political forces and political decisions create a kind of world of exchange that is almost inherently unequal and quickly naturalized. And, and so part of like my job is to sort of pull the veil away from these things. Well, thank you for telling this particular story. I think that the story of the Hamlet fire is, is one that people should engage and think about and talk about. And thank you very much uh, for taking the time to talk to us. There's one last thing maybe worth mentioning. Go ahead. And, and that is there's a Georgia connection here. The rows through the entire fire live in Georgia. They operate a plan in coming that um, works in association with the plant in in Hamlet. And in the wake of the fire, local labor and um, civil rights activists descended on the plant in coming and actually pelted it with bricks and um, stones. And eventually, the OSHA in Georgia would close down that plant because they, they were so fearful that another accident could happen. They went in and quickly inspected and deemed it to be unsafe. But the Rose, to this day, live in Georgia. They live outside of Atlanta. Is that right? They're, they're not in the chicken business anymore, though, right? No. They went bankrupt, and they never, they never went back into the chicken industry. Um, Brad Rowe would um, gravitate to bartending and would move to Charlotte and bartend in Charlotte for a few years before he moved to Atlanta and um, spent 
you know, really the next 20 years as a bartender in um, various places. He owned a bar for a while. He's very, he's actually um, an incredibly kind of easy person to talk to. He's a big sports fan. Like uh-huh. he, he, he's like a bartender. Um, he can talk about anything. At least I should say I've heard this. Brian Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was great. Great to be with you, Mark. simplest narrative about the Hamlet fire was that it was an accident, that if it weren't for a rogue employer, those people might have lived. That story is both comprehensible and it absolves all of us from complicity. And I do mean all of us. History, the best history, is about context and complexity. Those are the sorts of stories that help us to understand the evolving conditions that created the circumstances for the fire in the first place. The political, economic, and social context, the role of ideology in the crafting of laws and regulations that should have kept the fire's victims safe. Even the most mundane of personal choices, such as seeking out the cheapest television set to buy, the cheapest clothing, the cheapest chicken nuggets, There were a good many choices made over a period of generations that created the context for what happened in Hamlet, North Carolina. Those decisions, indeed decisions that you and I make every single day, sometimes come with terrible social costs. In upcoming conversations, we'll be discussing the history, politics, economics, and culture of our state and the American South, teasing out some of the complexities of the world we live in. Until then, I'm Mark Huddle. Thank you for listening.